thank you for spending the time with me tonight. I really appreciate it. I think your story is, from what I know about it, it's pretty incredible. You just give me like a background of where you're from, what your childhood was like, and how you ended up in the situation you are today. Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, my name's uh, Damon, obviously. I'm from Newark, New Jersey, originally. Um, I grew up and was born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. Um, uh, as a child, I mean, I, around 12, until about 12, uh, I experienced homelessness a lot off and on. Um, my mother had four children. Um, when I was about nine, um, we had finally kind of had some stability, housing-wise, and then one night, you know, uh, uh, a woman in the house in another apartment knocked over a candle, and the whole place went, uh, you know, up in flames. Uh, oh my gosh! Um, but uh, my mom, she passed away pretty young. She was forty-three when she passed away from cancer. Um, I moved to Kentucky uh, about eighteen. Um, I've got a daughter. She's twenty-six now. She was born my first year here. Oh in wow! Okay. Um, so that just she's a reminder how long I've been here. I just got to count. Her. Yeah, <laughs> right. Do you mind if I ask how old you are? I'm 45. Oh, okay. Um, so in 2007, um, I was arrested, um, charged with uh, possession of cocaine with intent to distribute. Um, the It was a, a local police thing. Uh, the fact that I was willing to plead guilty and just take my sentence didn't piss them off. <laughs> so they it told did me, or you said did or it did it? They, did. they told me that night that if I didn't cooperate, they would ask the federal government to pick up my my sentence, which would give me a mandatory minimum. Um, I probably would have got diversion or something if it had remained in the state, and they knew that I had no priors, right? Of that nature. Um, so um, true, they were. They gave it to the feds. The feds picked up the case, and I wound up uh, serving fifty three months. Uh, a federal prison. Uh, 53 now. months. And sorry, I, I misunderstood a little bit. I thought you had said that you you did take the easy route. So so it was your, you were arrested by, I'm guessing it was the state, is this, what state was this? Is this New Jersey? So local Lexington, Kentucky Police Department. Oh, Kentucky. Yeah. So yeah, local police and you're, you got the local DA's office and you weren't willing to take a plea. You wanted to fight it? It's not that I wasn't willing to take a plea. They wanted me to become an informant and set other people. Oh, uh, okay, I see. So where I was just gotcha. willing to say, "Hey, I'll go to prison for whatever I did, whatever gotcha. comes with what I did, I'll do." You know, that just wasn't enough. Um, so, so they passed it to the feds. Yeah, yeah. And then you went to federal court, and you got fifty-three months. And, and how old were you when this happened? This was two thousand. I was thirty-one. Thirty-one. And so, at, at what point? in your incarceration, did you, I mean, did, maybe I'm making an assumption. Did you have this epiphany in your incarceration? Like when I get out of here, I'm going to do something. Or was this something that happened later when you decided to go to law school? How did that come up? Kentucky is one of two states that don't have a federal public defender office. I think it's like Kentucky and like one of the Dakotas or something. They, um, they uh, appoint all the federal cases to private attorneys. Right, that are, it's the CJA list. Right, but most places it's just for conflict. In Kentucky, right. all of it 
is right. private attorney, uh, private appointments. And most of the people that they allow on the list are not going to take them to trial because they get to pick who gets on the list. And if you buck them too much, they're not going to let you on this list. Um, and you can do that when you don't have a public defender office. Without right. There's no, one, right. It, you, yeah. It's a strange so, incentive. Yeah. And, and honestly, when you look, at least in Lexington that I'm familiar with, you look at the lawyers who get these cases, some of them are really good lawyers in state court, but in federal court, like they just lay down because it's kind of an unspoken rule. Like if you cause too much trouble, we just not going to sign you no more case because they get to assign which lawyer gets you. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm guessing that's how a lot of them make their money. Right. So for most of them, that's the majority of their income is these appointed cases. And, and the, the shitty thing is that in the, I mean, in the state system as well, but especially in the federal system, you're already disincentivized to go to trial. I mean, it's just so, there's so much against you. You're dealing with, you know, the FBI, you're dealing with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Everything's usually so much more buttoned up than it would be in the state system. The night before my trial, he comes to see me. This is the appointed lawyer. And, uh, oh man, if you just, now that you ain't got to set nobody up, you just answer some questions for the DEA, uh, they'll, they'll give you a sentence reduction. Mm-hmm. I know who you were selling to, who you was buying from. I said, look, man, like tomorrow's a trial. Let's just go to trial. Yeah. Um, so he gets mad at me for saying I'm ready to go to trial. Right. Um, and I also had a lawful firearm in my nightstand. So they charged me with possession of a firearm and burglary. So he's telling me now that, you know, I'm looking at 10 years mm-hmm. because it's a consecutive sentence. I'm right. like, that's fine if I get convicted. But like I'm in the law book now in the county jail looking up this law. This 924C, and I'm researching the elements that they have to prove. And so now, like, I've got a very valid defense that I know, like, legitimate, like, because they have to prove these elements and we can fight these elements. So I tell, so he tells me, oh, well, man, you can't fight this. If you got charged with drugs and it was guns in the house, it's an automatic conviction. I'm like, man, that's not what these, that's not what these, these cases I'm reading say. <laughs> like, I know, but he, he yeah. truly don't even know what they have to prove, which was scary. Like, this guy literally didn't know what the right. at any point in this situation because this is is this happening the night before trial this conversation no this conversation was happening throughout about okay the but it at, came back up that night okay and at any point when you're having these conversations with him are you are you i'm putting myself in your in your shoes are you at all worried like maybe i have it wrong maybe i'm not reading these no. elements for, no no, no okay. because it was too many cases already and you know the sixth circuit was clear, like the, the elements they had to prove was clear. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't have a reading comprehension problem. The problem sure. is I asked him what were the elements that they had to prove. And he told me nothing. Like if you had the gun, you guilty. Right. right. That's not the test. Right. <laughs> it's like demonstrating his ignorance. Right, yeah. right, right. And uh, first I thought he was just saying that, but then I realized when I started bringing up some of the cases, like, he had no idea what I was talking about. Yeah, that's um, scary. So he leaves mad at me because I'm ready to go to trial the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I asked him before I said, "Man, how many of my witnesses have you contacted?" And he's like, "None." Uh, I'm like, I said, "I got a trial tomorrow, and my lawyer's not prepared." He said, oh, "I can get ready for trial in two hours." Now I know you can't do that. Do you know? Does this guy still practicing? Yeah, he still practices. Um, I know you can't get ready. I'm glad I wasn't that ignorant to think you'd get ready, but so that's number one. 
Um, number two, you can't even locate some of the witnesses I want in two hours. Like you might be able to do that in two days, right? But I gave you these names months ago. Yeah. Um, so then he comes back with another lawyer to argue with me about why I should just plead guilty. And so when and this is like 10 o'clock at night. So I'm like, you still haven't contacted any of my witnesses. He's like, no. So at this point, I know I ain't got no choice but to plead guilty <laughs> because I got a lawyer who's not ready for trial. Right. So I was of the, I, w I wanted to go in there and plead guilty to the cocaine charge and refute the gun charge. Mm -hmm. um, but I figured out by talking to some people that I trusted that they weren't going to reassign this lawyer. Like if I went in there and did that and said he was the reason, like at right. this point, screw you feel me i'm going to trial with that gun that day with him as a lawyer and he don't even know what the elements are that these people have to prove right. um, so that's pretty much how it ended <laughs> you know and i wound up in prison so at that point i wound up working in the law library there was a guy who was a phenomenal like jailhouse lawyer he's from mm -hmm. New York, and he was trying to he was fighting his case at the time he had been down over 12 years i think at that point and uh, he was in on a drug charge, but he had the enhancement, the 851 enhancement, which doubled his sentence. And uh, but he and he was attacking. He was such a brilliant legal mind. I think maybe he just was focusing on the law too much and didn't see the system. So one day, like and he was teaching me how to read these cases, yeah. how to write a brief. And I, so one day I asked him, like, man, what's 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 your prior for? He said, oh, it was 10 years before I caught this case. And it was a marijuana like in georgia he said and it was the lowest level marijuana offense you could have so i said um can you get that expunged and if you could like what would happen and we researched it and came to the conclusion that if he got that expunged he could apply for a resentencing right but we had to figure out if he can get it expunged so he called his sister in florida she literally drove to georgia and they told her all he gotta do is fill out this form and right. <laughs> Because it was such a small amount of marijuana, and it was a right. felony at the time, but right. most places it wasn't even a felony the amount he possessed it. Right. In most days, it wouldn't even have been a felony at all, but it was the lowest level. Like he didn't do a day in jail or anything for it. So he got it expunged. He wrote the brief up, they appointed him an attorney. And you know, the attorney like literally flew to Kentucky and came to the prison and was like, Would you be addressing and working for me when you get out of here? Like, that's how good a writer he was. And uh he wound up winning. Um, so he pretty much taught me. I got used to reading stuff like, uh, you know, the Supreme Court cases that would come out. You would get newsletters. Sure. I never thought I was going to go to law school. I think, I mean, at this point, I had no education beyond high school. And I barely graduated from high school. So when I got released, I was working. I always kept up with the cases still because I knew how important those cases were to people. So I found, like, Skoda's blog. The, the decisions and obviously this kind of stuff interested you right it wasn't just like yeah yeah you, know, you were sort of drawn to it right 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 you know the logic that they use uh this reasonable person like that was the most like mind-blowing concept to me and with the, the reasonable person like the reasonable person standard and uh society what society i'm like because you'd be reading like what people do you know and what society are you living in? Like the, the more, yeah, the more I live and the more I practice, the more I realize 
saying a reasonable person is utterly meaningless. I don't right. know what a reasonable person is anymore. I've it talked means, to some people who think I'm insane. Right, right. It just means that you're the reasonable person, and this is what I think. That's all that means. Right. Right. <laughs> um, I would keep up with that stuff. Eventually, I wound up working at a peanut butter factory, Jip Peanut Butter, and uh, the James Smucker Company, which owns it, owns Jif. Um, they had tuition reimbursement. Working overnight, six a six p.m. to six thirty a.m. Um, they said you can go to school, but you ain't gonna be able to get off work for this. You know, I'm working 70, 80 hours a week. Uh, oh my gosh. Shifts, seven day a week schedule, but they forced you in most times. You off. It was just that busy. Like the only holidays oh. off my first three years were Christmas Day and Thanksgiving Day. Every other. What holiday. were you doing there specifically? Uh, I started off as a line technician, machine operator, and then uh, I got. I took some tests and got promoted to an electrical maintenance guy and they trained me in machines and stuff like robots and stuff like that. I want to pause you for a second because this is something that's super interesting to me. So listening to you talk and listening to the stuff that you say you were doing, it's so, I don't know if you have thought about this or you realize this, but it's so obvious that you were, you're so ambitious, right? I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. If I get out of prison to me, the idea of working 70 hours a week at a factory or something would be like, I'm not going to do that. That's insane. I don't. So did you well, always have that kind of work ethic? Is, I mean, I even, I always had a job even when I was selling drugs. So okay. um, like it was just, it's just me. Um, like I said, my mom died real young. I pretty much lived on my own since I was 17. So there was no way, like I've never missed a rent payment, never had a utility come off. Yeah. Um, it's just all I had was me for the most part. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I would say, I don't know if it's work ethic or it's, it's mandatory for survival. I mean, you, you could have survived, I'm guessing, by just not even trying to advance. Like you were even trying to get yeah. promotion, right? Yeah, um, but that's just not me to be. I'm not a complacent person. Um, if I see an opportunity to better myself, you know, I'm, like I, I started teaching myself biblical Hebrew when I was locked up. Um, and then when I got out and uh, actually started college, they had Hebrew as one of the foreign language options. Um, so I actually took that and then I wound up with like a minor in Jewish studies because I oh, just that's had wild. Two, that's cool. two or three other classes to actually get the minors. I, was like, I might as well just do that. <laughs> outside yeah. of yeah. um, so, so yeah, I mean, I like challenging things and challenging myself. It's just that I guess I never was in an environment or had opportunities to be challenged a lot of times legitimately. A lot of times, like even when you get a factory job, you pretty much just stuck on the floor and that's all right. there to it. Uh, what was right. unique about Smucker and Jeff was they bought, Jeff used to be owned by Procter & Gamble and it's called what's called the Procter & Gamble work system is like they don't have maintenance men in their factories and stuff like that. Like they teach the machine operators to do basic maintenance. Mm -hmm. And they have like what I wind up doing. They might have like two maintenance guys in the whole plant. And if you can't get going, you call one of them. You see what I'm saying? And, and that, and they pay the workers more to do more, pretty much. Mm -hmm. But I saw even in that that if I can learn this, like I can get out of here. <laughs> like this, right. this program will take open and they're going to teach me this for free. So it was like a no brainer for me. Right. Uh, you know, to do this, like, hey, they're going to teach me this for free. Um, and all I got to do is pass some tests. So I studied, you know, you had to have a basic knowledge of it, which I didn't. Um, so I got some 
some books online, found some YouTube videos, and started to study it. And I wound up passing all five tests um, that they gave you. Um, and so I was working overnight. I enrolled at a community college during the day. Um, so I would get off at 6.30. I was living in uh, Georgetown, Kentucky, which is about mm -hmm. 20 miles outside of Lexington. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, get off, stay in Lexington, go to class, come home, sleep for a couple hours, go back to work. Um, I, I did pretty well at the community college. So I said, hey, I'll just go on for my bachelor's now. And so I transferred to University of Kentucky um, where I got my bachelor's degree. That was a lot harder because it wasn't as flexible. The community college had a lot of online classes and a lot of late evening classes. Um, UK, where I was in my upper level classes, whenever they offered the class, that was it, you know? So there was like a semester where I would leave home on Sunday at 5.30 to go to work and wouldn't get back to Tuesday afternoon for three hours to sleep and then go back to work. So that was a little rough, but <laughs> I got through it. I mean, just listening to you what, explaining what you were doing, it sounds exhausting. Oh, it yeah. Sounds so yeah. exhausting. Um, and one of the good you things. Must have been, I can only imagine to do something like that, you must have just been so determined. Well, I was just, it was about options for me. I didn't know what I was going to do with the degree at the time. I just knew the degree would give me options. And well, what, what kind of degree were you looking for? Uh, so I, I, I said, was like, they limited, like, it, they had to be approved by them, something that could advance you with the company. Um, oh, I see. Okay. I chose psychology because that's like a general degree, human type of stuff. And what I did was I, I added a second major in something that I was interested in. But all you yeah. had to do was the primary. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it was psychology. Um, and um, like I said, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I just knew it would give me options at that point. I didn't see much room for advancement there beyond the where I was at because, um, like the the field I just went into there, like I was the only black person in it. Period. There was no black managers, so it was kind of like the right was on the wall. Like even though I was making a hundred thousand dollars plus a year doing what I, but I was working myself to death to do it. So that helped me get on my feet, and then once I got and get established and helped my daughter. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what seemed like the best job in the world when I got it, the clothes I got to graduation, it just seemed like, okay, this place sucks now. <laughs> so yeah. I'm just like, okay, what am I going to do next? And then I just thought about it. I was like, you know what? Why not law school? So right. I just yeah. put an LSAT pretty much on my breaks because I'm still in school full time. So the only time I got to study for it was on my breaks at work. <laughs> um, so uh -huh. I you know, boy, all these power, I think it was power score or something it's called. Boy, yeah, yeah, power score, yeah. Yes, I'm, you know, they're like, man, what are you, what are these little puzzles you doing on this scrap paper? Like, look, man, I'm studying for this test. Like, Dude, what kind of is, they got you drawing these puzzles. I'm like, man, something called logic games. I ain't never heard of. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so. Uh, that is so crazy. I took the L said, I don't know how, because I had to work overnight the night before. I got fussed in the night before. I had to work 12 hours. <laughs> so I'm like a zombie, but I take so you the took the LSAT like while you're in the midst of working all these hours. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. um, so I got off 6:30 that morning. I think it started at 8 or 9. Mm -hmm. So I just went straight to the test site and took a cat nap in my car. Um then I applied wow. to a few schools and uh I, and I was invested, I investigate everything. So 
I was investigating just regional schools and uh, I came across the Innocence Project at the University of Cincinnati. Mm. And I, like, I would love to do this. I knew I wasn't gonna go to the University of Kentucky because uh, they really had no focus on social justice or it's pretty, mm. you could tell us, uh, we prepare you for corporate law, everybody else is just, you know. Right, right, uh, yeah. Damage. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so I wound up getting a pretty good scholarship offer from the University of Cincinnati. Um, and uh, wound up at the University of Cincinnati my second year. I was a pre-admit because you can apply to the Innocence Project with admission. Um, so I went through the in interview process. Is it like a clinic, like the Innocence yeah. Project clinic? Yeah. So uh, the Ohio Innocence Project is based out of the University of Cincinnati. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and it's the most successful Innocence Project in the country. Um, I think we just, a couple months ago, 33 or 34 person. Uh, there's wow. other, there are other Innocence Projects that have more exonerated people, but they've been around a lot longer. Uh, gotcha. So it's like uh, on average, like per year? Yeah. I think, I don't even think we're 20 years old yet. Where like New York has more the original, right. Innocence Project, but, but they've been around since like eighty nine, ninety, something like right. that. So, uh, so I wound up there for the Innocence Project, uh, and my third year, I saw that they had an indigent defense clinic at the Hamilton County Public Defender in Cincinnati. So those are two things I went to do. And right now, I'm finishing up my clinic experience, and uh, so next month I got three trials scheduled. Um, and you're, are you graduating soon? I graduate next month. Oh my gosh. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Where are you at? Well, right now I'm at the department of justice, but I'm leaving in three weeks to start my own practice. What state? Richmond, Virginia. Cool. Yeah. I'm going to practice civil rights, abuses of power, mostly civil litigation. 1983 litigation. Exactly. I would like to do 1983. Uh, um, I would love to do 1983, Title IX, Title VII, 1983, clergy sex abuse is the kind of stuff I would like to focus on. You go to law school? Georgetown. Okay. And then after after I clerked, I came straight to the U.S. Attorney's Office. What year did you graduate? 18. Um, Y'all have a professor there who was incarcerated. Hopwood? Hopwood, yeah, Sean. Hopwood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got to meet him briefly. Pretty cool guy. I, I took his class, yeah. Okay, okay. Specifically because I thought he was, his story was so crazy. So I, uh, my second year of law school, I took the civil rights litigation class. And I don't know if you know who uh, Al Gerhardstein is. Mm -mm. Well, he was the lead attorney on the Obergefell case. Like, Obergefell was his class. Oh, yeah. um, so he took that case to the Supreme Court. So he was my civil rights professor. Um, but we had to write a paper on an idea uh, to use 1983 litigation to uh, uh, attack uh, disparate impact. Yeah, I had, I had an idea because he he really harped on how you can use 1983 litigation to negotiate policy with the municipalities you're suing. Mm. I had this idea called I called contactless policing, where yeah. you would negotiate this policy to where instead of pulling people over for civil infractions. They could mail the tickets, like take a picture of the license plate, you know, but dash cam got the infraction and you mail Yeah. Summer yeah. of my 2L year, after my 2L year, I worked in New Jersey for legal aid and I met with a couple of legislatures and I ran an idea by them. And so two weeks ago, they actually induced, introduced a bill 
based off my paper uh, to ban the police in the state from pulling people over for pretty much old traffic chapters, except for like DUI, reckless driving. Sure, sure. Non-dangerous. Yes, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. um, So hopefully it makes it through. The the primary sponsor is actually a sheriff's deputy. and she was named the uh, Police Benevolent Association's Legislature of the Year last year. So she's definitely got the pool to get it through. With That's amazing. So hopefully, it's still going to be a firestorm. I thought it was going to be, once the article came out, I thought it was going to be bad. But in the article, like the PBA, the head of the PBA in New Jersey was like, well, we're not against the bill. We just got to look at it. I'm like, this is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, 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 that is. Be like a shitstorm right here. But I think that's just the power of finding the right person. Oh yeah. You know, I mean I can't I can't wait to see the kind of things you're gonna do over the course of your legal career. I feel like you're gonna be a, a, a damn trailblazer. That's amazing. One thing that I wanted to talk to you about is you know, one of the frustrations I had in so a, a little bit of background also on me. So I actually went to law school to do criminal defense. That was what I was always interested in, mostly criminal law in general, but criminal defense is what I I thought I was leaning towards. Right. Um, I went to law school with like a yeah a social justice focus. Um, I, I didn't even know what big law was in my first year of law school. Right. I interned at the Public Defender Service in Washington, D.C. I interned at the Innocence Project, the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project in D.C. And I would put the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project maybe as in a different category. But one thing that frustrated me, that has frustrated me in my legal experience, legal experience working in criminal law, is that to me, it's like nothing matters. And that's sort of why I think what you're saying about writing these articles or using 1983 to influence policy, like that is really where the action is. Unfortunately for me, that stuff is not what drives me. I don't have passion for that. I have passion for arguing in court and presenting evidence and defending a person like that's what gets me going and so that bothers me that i feel like when i've tried to do that like when i interned at the public defender service or when i was a prosecutor trying to implement what i thought was justice in favor of the defendant a lot of times i still so often just felt like this is such a waste of time nothing none of this matters we're merely cogs in a wheel and the wheel is going to keep turning no matter what we do definitely now i I say this for the individual that you're representing or beautiful, like you can reduce harm to that person. Yeah. You said in the big picture, nothing changes. Um, this is just, you know, a, a speck of sand on a beach. Exactly. Um, so without the systemic change at, you know, the legislative level, right. even um, elections of judges, you know, are so important. Um, change, you know, like one thing I was, I was fighting with like locally in Cincinnati, you know, it was a judge that everybody hates. And I'm like, so why not go after them? And they're like, well, they're in a Republican district. So right. it's over. I said, but that don't stop you. they like, what? A Democrat can't beat them. I said, so go get a libertarian. I want everybody right. libertarian. Right? They don't care. They're, and, and they're conservative. But guess what? Their politics not going to matter on the bench because what they their views of the criminal justice system align with your goals. You got to get to the point where this party shit don't matter. It's about ideas, you know. Like I told you, like of course the libertarians, which are considered an extreme wing of the Republican Party, are against qualified immunity, and the progressive, and the Democratic Party is against right. it. 
then that tells you it's the people in the middle that's the problem, right? right, right, right. Up and you won't even reach across the aisle and say, hey, Rand Paul, help me with this because you so worried about is Rand Paul the racist? I don't give a damn about that. If he's going to help me get rid of qualified immunity in a bill, that's right. more important than what he, – because he's going to be there. The people of Kentucky going to keep reelecting this guy. So, right, right. you know, cutting out your eyes, bite your face just makes no sense to me. Uh, well, I want to talk to you about how this all fits in with your re restorative justice thing. I, the first time I ever heard about restorative justice – was when I was working at the public defender service in DC and my co-intern, uh, he was a law student at the time too, probably one of the smartest guys I've ever met, had all of these unique ideas about the criminal justice system. I think he was a prison abolitionist and he kept talking about restorative justice. I'd never heard about it before. Can you basically tell me what restorative justice means to you? Restorative justice at its core doesn't disavow or write off the need for prisons. That's number one. Right. Um, um, so you don't have to like be an abolitionist, uh, although you see a lot of people in that movement who embrace it, who are abolitionists. Sure, sure. Yeah, so makes the, sense. Sort of brushes the, the justice kind of embraces principles from all of the theories of punishment, you know, uh, rehabilitation, deterrence, all of them. Like it embraces some aspects of all of them, um, but it's primarily concerned with uh, making righting the wrong that was done by the crime and what that means is making restoring wholeness to the victim the community and the offender um because right. think about it it's only two times the victim really gets involved in the process is either private meeting with the prosecutor or the, the statement at the end when it's time for sentencing so in your work as a prosecutor can you ever really say that you knew what the victim wanted out of the situation, you kind of gave them the options. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, the, the sad thing about being a prosecutor and part of the reason I left is because our caseload is so large and it's so overwhelming that you become a robot in what you're yeah. doing. So I always had to call, under DC law, I had to call every victim right. to basically get their consent in a way. I didn't have to do what they said, but I had to inform them, them. Right. inform them. And Every time I did, all I was thinking the whole time was, I got to get off the phone. Just get me off the phone. I didn't care if they agreed, disagreed, you know, wanted to tell me their story. If they did want to tell me their story, I was usually- You didn't have time, you didn't have time. and you didn't have time for it. I didn't have time. But the, the legislature is making me make this phone call. <laughs> exactly. So the answer to your question is, I would know, but I didn't care because I had too much to do. And you still might not have known, because here's why. Right, yeah. You presenting them with the options that the law currently- allows to them right Jail, fine restitution what they don't Please. want under that, right yeah. what if they want under that right yeah. um what if a property a victim of property somebody vandalized the wall on my store mm. what if i want that kid to come just paint this store this wall that he messed up and right. watch me work that day and see how hard i work and how what i put in every day to make this little small business work for me um, right so imagine if you had options like that available to you that the victim, that was the victim's choice. Like, would you like right. uh, this? Like, how much of your caseload will probably be alleviated, right? Because let's just be honest. With a lot of misdemeanors and you see these judges 10 days in jail, like, what does that solve? That often creates more harm, right? Like, sure. like this person might lose everything because of this 10 days in jail. 
but they've learned nothing other than that I need to be better to not get caught, <laughs> right? That, that's pretty much the message you're sending them. Um, right. But uh, restorative justice also says, okay, this is what the victim wants. This is the harm you created in the community. How do we write that? And then how do we get you to a place where you understand truly that uh, the impact that your crime had on the victim and the community? Um, and when you actually look at some pilot programs and programs that have been in place, victim satisfaction with the, with the system actually goes through the roof compared to traditional uh, law and order, lock them up, fine, whatever, because they feel like their voice mattered and they were a part of the system. Um, and it's always the victim's option. You know, it's not like you forcing this on. Right, right. But, and what uh, jurors, you said, do you know what jurisdictions? Colorado, are? I know, have a program. New York does. There's, there's one powerful story in New York where this guy was robbed on mm -hmm. the street. And in New York, it's a 15-month program. And um, and it's in lieu of your prison sentence. And you meet with the, the victim if they want to. And the victim and you come up with an agreement that you're going to adhere to. Um, and a lot of times it begins with a face-to-face -face in a group setting. And right. they're telling you the impact that this had on them. Right. Um, but there's this powerful story of this guy who was robbed by a guy. And uh, they were working in this restorative justice concept. And they had a plan, you know, other stuff he was doing. But he asked the guy, because he learned through the course of them talking that the guy knew martial arts. The guy who robbed him knew martial arts. And he said, I want you to teach me how to defend myself. And the guy taught him like how to like he said this is how you grab me teach me how to break your and he told him like how to bend somebody's wrist uh put them in a and the, the man said the next day was the first time since he had been robbed he walked down the street and a large male could walk past him and he wasn't afraid mm -hmm. um and he said just that made it worth for him because he was in a prison himself right for those two years yeah and, yeah and one of the other things he said was getting to know this guy were, and it's kind of the same with victims and offenders. They're not even people. They're not, they're dehumanized. Both of them, a lot of times, are dehuman. Like them phone calls they was making you make. Like, I just need to get out. That's exactly dehumanizing, right? Exactly. This, this assembly line of defenders coming in in shackles or whatever, that's dehumanizing, right? Nobody affirms their humanity in the process. The humanity right. of the victim is never affirmed. They, the, the judge may often give it lip service and the prosecutor may often give a lip service when they're advocating for a, a harsher sentence. But the fact that you don't know what problems this has caused that person in their life, you don't know where the gaps are as a result of this, you don't know what they need as a result of it, that just shows you that this is not about the victim, it's not about the community, this is about the system that just locks people up because justice has to begin with the person who was wronged, right? Um, for instance, the biblical phrase an eye for an eye, you know, two for two, life for life, that speaks to proportionality. You know, if I if I knock out your tooth, you can't poke out my eye. If I poke out your eye, you can't kill me. Uh, but it doesn't require you to knock my tooth out if I knock yours out. It doesn't require you to poke my eye out because that might not bring you satisfaction. But if it does, and that's what you want to do, poke his eye out, right? Um, but some people really just want to be feel like they've heard and they want right. you and they want an apology a lot of times an apology man just goes like a heartfelt one where yeah. someone see the impact 
Because a lot of times crime, especially crimes that are rooted in poverty or addiction, the people are so caught up in their circumstances that they don't see the effect that it's having on the, the victim or the right. community at large. And a lot of times when you pull them out of that situation and they get, they sober up and not just from drugs or alcohol or like appear mentally, like I'm seeing things clear and then they see the effect and the harm is caused, that has a greater impact than just throwing somebody in the cage. Because when you're in the cage, one, you've never had, a, you don't know the impact you really had on the victim, right? Um, you have no communication. A lot of times in most states, they can't even talk to you if they wanted to because this is, you know, you forbidden from having contact with them. Right. Um, so there's really no wholeness being made. Um, there's no, okay, this is the, this is the impact that it's had on the community. Um, like for instance, in federal prison, I was at a camp. Um, we ran the entire camp, right? Landscape, building facilities, the warden's house got knocked down. I mean, destroyed in a hurricane. We rebuilt it. Like, like, and if somebody like, for instance, we need materials from Lowe's, they throw the keys to the pickup truck to an inmate. And he's driving the Lowe's, <laughs> loading up all stuff on his truck and just having them put it on the prison's, you know, bill. So if yeah. he can do that for yeah. the government and be out right. the community, why can't he do that for his victim? <laughs> right? Or right, right, right. Similar victims. Like that victim don't want kind of, okay. It's some other people who've been victims of these types of crime, and you go serve them, right? right. Um, so the so the and don't just and, don't just, and I would imagine it's it's not just hey go serve these people. It's right. sit down with these people, hear their story, talk to them because that's part of the problem. I mean, when you're having these like work programs or you're you're forcing these people to do things, I mean, I don't want to speak for you. You have this experience, but I would imagine that you can create an, sort of animosity and a bitterness because you're just sort of forcing people to do stuff yeah. like like people are not that complicated if you tell somebody you have to do this thing and you don't give them like a, a personal connection with it you're just saying we're telling you to do it so you have to you're just going to piss them off right right, right? and that creates resentment bitterness right. anger um if 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 you got a young kid who don't have education part of that plan that he comes up with in that restorative justice with that victim might be I want to see you better yourself so you don't have to do this no more. Right. So you're not going to get off of probation until you get your GED or you enroll in college and complete a certain amount of, of credit hours. You know, one of the most frustrating things for me was going to the library in federal prison. And every morning I'm like, when I first got there, I'm seeing all these guys in this room in the library and they just sitting there for like three or four hours. I'm like, what the hell's going on in this room? And they're going every day. So I asked one of the young kids, like, why y'all in that room every day? He told if you ain't, if you ain't got your GED, you got to go to this class. I yeah. said, but y'all not doing anything in class. He said, yeah, right. they don't. They just make you sit there for three hours. Right. And they funding for right. it. And I'm like, what the hell? So I said, I actually guess how long have you been here? He said, I've been here seven years. I said, so you've been sitting in that room for seven years. I said, yeah. what happened the last time you took the test? He said, I have never taken a test. I said, why? He said, because I can't get a high enough score on a pretest to take the real test. And I was like, damn. So I asked the kid, I was like, because, and when I, so I went and applied for a tutoring physician to help. And she rejected me, like outright. Like, oh, you ain't been kind of, she's rejected me. Like most of them was like the white collar, white guys who was in there, you know, just wanted something to do during the day that they ain't got yeah. me out. 
entrepreneur. Yeah. So I just, so I went back to the kid and I was like, do you want to, you want to get your GED? He's like, yeah. I said, I can help you get your GED. Like, he's like, cool. So I started to her myself. I, it couldn't have been due them three hours because they had to be in that class and I wasn't approved. So after that class was over, he started sitting down with me in the library and the head of the library would see us working. And then eventually another older guy, because this kid was like 25, had been locked up since he was 18, um, first time offender. Um, he started sitting down and I, I would just do stuff like, like with the math. I was like, dude, y'all know how to do math. Man, I don't know these facts. I said, bro, how many ounces is in a kilo? 36. What's a quarter of a kilo? I said, every time you get a fraction, turn it into a kilo of cocaine if you got to. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and it was just stuff like that to make it real to them, right? Right, right. So like, a, like six weeks later, they got a pretest, and both of them qualified to take the real test for the first time. And she calls me to her office. And she's like, I saw you working with them. Mujibuba, she told me, you know, they like them not them with the highest scores on the pretest in two years at the she said, uh, would you like a job? I said, nah, I'm cool. I don't I ain't doing it for that reason. You ain't want me anyway. <laughs> so I'm good. I'm, I'm not she said, Would you keep working with them until the real? I said, All right, I ain't doing this for you, I'm doing this for them. Of course I'm gonna keep right, working with right. Um, but that just showed me, like for, for instance, that is not restorative. Like and that kid, the one kid I'm telling you about. I got to see his personal file. Like he had a, his IQ was borderline retarded. His mom was a heroin addict and he had four younger siblings. And that's why he was out there like literally taking care of his siblings while his mom is nowhere to be found. And I'm like, and they locked this kid up for 10 years. <laughs> just like they gave this kid a 10 year sentence. Mm -hmm. um, and that to me, that's just like asinine. But when I was in the county jail, now, I didn't know what restorative justice was at that time. I got a glimpse of it from a judge in Lexington, a federal judge. So my cellmate in the county jail, uh, he was from Detroit. This was the second time he had been arrested in, in Kentucky. So while we was in the, while we was in the cell, he told me, he told me, like, hey, I my real name ain't this, what they call him. He said, I caught a case when I was 18 in Detroit. And when I was supposed to report to prison, I just bought an addict's uh, birth certificate and social and came to Kentucky and got an ID in his name. So I've been in prison already in the fake name. So mm -hmm. like they don't even know about he been to, he had been to state prison in the fake name and he said they don't even know about who I really am and this other case in Detroit. <laughs> but when they do his PSI, <laughs> the the guy shows up and he's got the Detroit case in his file. <laughs> he's like, career criminal. So he came back, he said, man, they know. Mm -hmm. He was looking at, he thought he was looking at 10 years as a second time offense from five to 10 with the 851. He said, man, they said, I'm looking at 50 years, a real criminal. And so the PSI did their interview and they found out that when he was like nine or 10 years old in Detroit, like his father had him selling heroin. Um, and yeah. his mother was an addict that his father got hooked. And, was, and so the prosecutor and the judge read this report and I guess they had some kind of program that they was doing and they told him we want you to talk to these kids and also make a video for future classes and we'll give you a departure for you oh. this is in federal prison this is in federal and they sentenced him to his natural guidelines instead of the career criminal so he got right. the team 
Um, but to me, that's like a restorative justice element in the sentencing guidelines. Yeah. Well, it wasn't in the guidelines. They did this on their oh, own. Yeah. It's on their own. It's like a yeah. attorney had to give the judge permission into the park. And she was like, if he does this, I'll help him out. And I'm going to give you the same judge. I get to federal prison and there's this white guy. We have a good friend that he owns a pizza chain called Goodfellas Pizza. Uh, he was a young white guy at the time. Him and his friend, who was the partner in the pizza chain, decided they gonna sell some marijuana, even though they don't. They got they own real estate, you know. They own this pizza chain, but we just go. We want to sell some weed, so get set up. And they looking at. I think he said he was looking at eighteen to twenty four months on his guidelines, right, max. But where it's no mandatory minimum, they can go down to zero probation. So he talks about how, like, hey, man, you know, my pastor's there, my mom, I get all these statements, people in the community, like business leaders, people who really have positive opinions of them. And this is the same judge who did this for the kid I just told you about, right? So he's telling me this story, and I'm thinking, oh, man, how he sent you to prison at all? Like, this seems like a good judge. Yeah. He said, my mom talked, she's crying, my pastor talks, my dad, my sisters, it was like a president of some company. He said, then I go, and I'm crying. He said, and that judge looked at me and said, Mr. Mr. Coates, when I look at you, I see a complete waste. The waste of a good family, the waste of a good education, <laughs> the waste of every opportunity in the world. He said, I honestly don't think 24 months is going to be enough for you to learn how big a waste you are to society. 42 months. <laughs> so this same judge who have mercy on the kid. Yeah. It's usually the opposite. Usually that right. kid, the pizza guy gets out scot-free and the kid who came from the Well, circuit, historically and, and sort of like culturally, that's what we think is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, and I was like, man, like, his name was Clark. I was like, man, Judge Clark, he kind of gets it. <laughs> you feel like, and I didn't say that to him because obviously yeah. he's mad about his sentence. No. Because he didn't know about my friend from the county. Right. And that's, I'm glad you pointed that out because that was that's something that keeps rattling around in my head, which is when you explain the restorative justice thing, all I think is that sounds fantastic. It sounds completely necessary, but it also just sounds like it only will address a very specific section of crime. It'll only address a very narrow area of issues in the criminal justice system because think about how much crime and, and how many people in the criminal justice system are there, not because they don't understand the harm they're causing or because they don't care, but because of poverty. I think it can address that too, though, from this perspective. Hmm. Um, once you start them programs, there are a whole lot of organizations dedicated to changing our system who will, A, put stuff in place to help both offenders and victims, right? And B, I think some people, once you give them the incentive, the incentive to change, and say kind of like like you said earlier, if you tell somebody you got to do this, but instead of telling them you got to do this, like you have the option to do this, and we're not just gonna give you this option. We're gonna show you how you can do whatever the plan is, and you can do it, or you can choose the traditional route and go to prison. Right. I think most people, like people, people often say, "I did the best I could," and we don't do the best we could. We do the best we know how, mm -hmm. because you can't do better than you know, and so. Once you know better, you generally do better. I tell people even crime, um, you can't even commit a crime that's greater than your resources or your access. Like, for instance, the guy who walked into a bank with a gun 
is doing the same thing as the guy on the computer stealing the money right he right. just has great access right <laughs> he got a different skill set right um, so your your criminal your level of criminality can't even exceed your skill set um i can't commit a hacker crime because i don't know anything about computer software right right so i think restorative justice can address all those elements um especially in this day and age do you know what khan academy is khan academy it's like this tutoring system is free online it's like a uh four ones 501c um but it's awesome like they do lsat tutoring now they do act sat cool. but they, they do everything from kindergarten all the way through college and you can literally get a complete education like there are stem schools who instead of you the teach they tell the teacher to use khan academy that's how good it is right um, but in this day and age it's easy and more accessible and even uh more economical to say hey if you want to better yourself there are avenues and resources available to you to do better and to give you opportunities uh, for instance i told you how we rebuilt the warren's house um if and these are a lot of these inmates didn't have these skills but they somebody's out there hey move this two by four over here have you right, right. i refuse to do it i like, man, I ain't building that man y'all can throw me in the hole i'm not building his house back like y'all y'all got a billion dollar budget i'm going to build this house for 17 right. dollars a month right. throw me in the hole. i ain't doing it um they didn't throw me in the hole but uh but i was willing to go like i'm not building his house no yeah, yeah. but think about it those same guys that built his house how many habitats for humanity could they have built in the community right. that was yeah. damaged by their crime you see what i'm saying uh, yeah, and, yeah. and if you built that house with your own hands and sweat and blood you might tell somebody don't act a fool in front of this house i built this house <laughs> you see what i'm saying like i got some right. sweat on this block i built four houses on this block don't be out on this block acting stupid vandalizing right. property i right. built um right. and, that, and so i think it can address more than it just kind of see because when i first started getting to i was thinking you know there's a whole lot that you can't do like i was kind of like with you it's a small subset of, but i think there's a small subset that it can address it can't like right. somebody who's a psychopath serial right. rapist, a serial killer the extremes well i have a i have a question yeah. that addresses that and this is what gets to the hypocrisy in society and how we treat criminal justice in some ways. Would you think that restorative justice, I know you're not a prison abolitionist, so maybe you'll say no, but I would, I would love to ask this question of prison abolitionists. Do you think restorative justice or that kind of uh, process should be done to the officers who killed George Floyd? Who killed George Floyd. You know, one of the things, one of my tweets that I, I was crazy, it was crazy how I took off was the day of that verdict. I said, this is how horrible a person George uh, Derek Chauvin is. He has every public defender in the world rooting for a conviction. (laughs) You got to be a horrible being for that. But I do do think so. Um, Because you put Derek Chauvin in a room full of people he's harmed. And he's got to look them in the eye as human beings. And you know the if and if they're dead their family and you gotta because one of the things i actually think about with restorative justice is you ever hear how in ancient rome they would make a murderer carry around the body of his victim but they like they would literally strap the body to you right and 
make you like wherever you went, you would go about your life with the person right. you killed. And eventually that person's body would mail start to mail to your skin, like and would have to be pried off, right? Now that's extreme, but I think to an extent, when you get into crime like that, that that principle of you carrying the burden of the harm you caused, I think there's something to that. Um, um, if somebody, if you maim somebody and there's some stuff that they can't do, like that's a like you sending that person to prison does nothing to help that person with what they can't do now. So I guess here's my question then, because I do agree with you, but then I'm conflicted because when I'm thinking, and I'm only, I don't know Derek Chauvin, but if I assume his mind works like my mind works, if, if I was Derek Chauvin and I did what he did, and then Um, I was forced to be in a room and listen to these people, I would feel genuinely uh, disgusted with myself and I would be miserable for the rest of my life for what I did. But here's the issue I have. If that's all that's required of Derek Chauvin, then won't every police officer who's a little bit reckless and a little bit hateful look at that and go, oh, so even if I do fuck up and even if I do later regret it, the worst that's going to happen is I'll just have guilt. No, because part of restorative justice is the offender and the victim have to agree upon and sometimes it's an individualized, personalized plan just between y'all as a group. Mm-hmm. And the victim has to approve of what the line, the recourse will be. It begins with a dialogue, but eventually the goal is what is going to be the course of action that the victim requires. Okay. So what you're saying is that those, if you're watching this on television, you still have the fear of the traditional uh, okay. You know so it's, that makes sense. So the risk is still there. The alternative way of dealing with it. Which right. think about it. If 35% of victims chose that path, how much would your life be easier as a prosecutor? Oh, yeah, for sure. And it's still a deterrence. It's I'm gonna give you another example. So, and we understand this, which is why we have a criminal RICO and a civil RICO, right? <laughs> There's some things that we're not going to require, exactly. but exactly. you still got to pay, right? Exactly. The problem is when it's poor people who are disproportionately impacted by violent crime and those types of crimes, um, telling them that they have a civil remedy don't work because they don't have access to lawyers. Right, right. The civil system. Yeah. Yep. So if you took that principle and built it into the criminal code, and not made it just because think about it if i go to prison and you give me restitution i'm gonna be locked up for some years and can't pay it when i get out i'm probably gonna be on some type of supervision and i got fines to pay and i'm trying to rebuild my i'm not gonna be able to, to afford to pay nothing to the victim then right um a lot of guys get out like i did when i got out of prison i owed thirty thousand dollars in child support back child support <laughs> you see what i'm saying so mm-hmm. i had i was starting from a hole on top of the fact that when I'm at the halfway house, I had to pay them 25% of my gross check every week, right? So 25% of my gross before taxes or anything went to the halfway yeah. house. Yeah, I'm, I'm washing dishes right here. So I'm not making a lot of money. And you expect me to save up enough money to get my own place, furnish it. <laughs> like this ain't this is not realistic right here. Right. 
but if you build some of that into the criminal code, like it's a whole lot of people that aren't satisfied once they think they're going to be, but once yeah. the, the court proceedings are over and that person's gone, yeah. they don't feel no safer. They don't feel like justice has been done and they don't feel like their wishes or their voice even matter. Um, so it's kind of, kind of almost goes back some, you ever read about like how colonial, the colonial colonies had like private prosecutors, the person who was wrong would bring the prosecution before you had public prosecutors. Uh, so it almost- still, It still works that way, by the way, in Virginia. Does it? For misdemeanors, there's uh, a lot of jurisdictions in Virginia where the prosecutor doesn't show up at misdemeanors. If you want to do it, you go on your own. Okay, okay. So think yeah. about that principle right there, right? Yeah. But now I get to negotiate with this person right. as to what I want them to do. Right. And then they might hear it and, and think and say, you know, prison's the better option for me. Right. 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 But most people, I think, would say, hey, I'm going to get us a good faith effort and try to make it work. If a victim chooses to participate, you know they're going to give it a good faith effort, right? right, right. Um, but I think most offenders, because most guys in prison don't realize the impact their behavior had on right, right. even their own family. I realized once I got to prison why it was so easy for a bunch of people to keep going back. Um, I said, because if you don't care about nobody but yourself, prison's not right. hard work out, play basketball, softball. <laughs> but the fact that I wasn't there for my daughter for those four years, like, was devastating to me. He said, I'm never going to get them years back. Um, I was in prison for four years and never called nobody and asked them for money because I just wasn't that tight. Like, I made the decision. I went to prison. Right. I'm going to do it on my own. You see what I'm saying? Like, I'm not right. calling nobody asking them to send me anything. Um, matter of fact, when I got out, I had a job. I, and I got a job as a dishwasher and I ain't got no money at this point. I left prison with $27, you know? So I called my sister and I just asked her because she bought me a black pair of pants, some black shoes and a white shirt, which was the uniform. She said, yeah, I, I can do that. And she's in New Jersey. So two days later, I get five boxes of stuff like to the halfway house. I'm like, what the hell? It's a whole bunch of clothes. So I said, why did you say, she said, shut the hell up. And just let me do something for you for once. Okay. Is that okay? <laughs> and, and I guess my whole life, I've just been so self-sufficient and just dependent on me. Yeah. And like my father's secretary told me, she was like, uh, do you realize how hurt your pops is? And he's not my biological father. He's a minister who kind of raised me. Mm -hmm. uh, she was like, she was like, you was gone for four years and never once did you call her asking for anything. He said, she said, he's got people with their hands out every day because he's a very successful mm -hmm. minister who travels the world. And she was like, his own son never called him for prison and asked him for anything. Um, I think I called and asked him to come speak somewhere. You think he'll come? Because he had like a, a really high um, appearance fee. I said, we can't afford, she said, shut up. He's going to be there on the next train if he, if he, because he don't fly. I said, what do you think that? She was like, when I told him, she said, when I told him you wanted him to come, she said, I haven't seen that man so happy since um, your little sister was born. Like, he was amazed that you actually asked him for something. Right. Um, so, but that taught me, like, even in prison, how I and my family had this 
um, talking about impact on the community and everybody, like there was this impact on them. And even just me not reaching out to them at that point still hurt. You see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, people uh, people think that sometimes if you're asking them for help, you're burdening them. Some, some sometimes people want to help you. Right, right, right. And that's just they want to be there for you. Wanted to. Um and so restorative justice, uh restorative justice approach would force somebody like me to reach out right to my resources and Hey, I'm forced like even my sister to come to this meeting, maybe, or my brother, or my friend, and say, "Okay, what's the issue with your brother?" Right. And have this discussion, and then maybe them even offer some assistance or ideas that I didn't know was available to me, even myself. You see what I'm saying? So, yeah. I, I think restorative. Once you and, and that's the thing. There's no uniform approach. It's flexible, which the law is generally not. Right. Um, right. Um, and each state, each jurisdiction, each victim can have right. their own ideas about what I want out of this. And this is what I think might make me whole. And I think as it grows, and usually when you have a process like that, on both ends, the people who were successful in it remain a part of it for the people behind them. And then you have ideas like, hey, you might think that's a good idea, but I tried it, I thought it was a good idea. And it didn't bring me the the closure I thought it was gonna bring me. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. so I'm not telling you not to do it, but I'm just letting you know. You know, yeah. that sounds. You might think this is you know humiliating this person, or this gonna give you some sense of this vengeance that you think you gonna get from this request is gonna bring you some kind of closure, but it's really not. Um, and I think you get to a place where society now governs itself, and the role of the government is to serve the people, which it should be the role of government. Um, but let's just be honest, you look at this like as a prosecutor, you really weren't serving the victim. That wasn't your job. It was the nobody victim. nobody was getting served. Right, right. Society wasn't being served, the victim wasn't being served. And most crimes today, even though we like to say the government is wrong, they not. Most of these crimes, the government is not being wrong, right? Um it's a person. Uh, right, right. So and and it should be the primary victim right. in the situation whose voice matters the most. And you know why it's so easy to pass these punitive laws and to scare people and stuff? Because a lot of times they bring, that's the only time the victim has a say. When somebody wants to, oh, let's bring this person up here and tell how bad they was done. And they don't really care about the law you're trying to pass. Right. Now, all of a sudden, somebody's listening to me. Like, That's really what matters, right? It's like Mothers Against Drunk Driving or something. Right. It's like right. these these women are there shouting like in support of maybe legislation or something, but they're really just shouting because they're so angry, and this is the only time people are listening to them. Right. The only time I, I got to listen to was in front of – so if this is the only time I'm going to have a voice, then I don't care what happens after this. Go ahead and pass whatever punitive law you want to pass, but – Right. Somebody's finally listening to me. 